Among the scholars who study the world of work, Paul Spector is a giant. A 2012 Indiana University study and a 2019 Stanford University study listed Paul as one of the 10 most influential business management researchers worldwide. He has published more than 200 peer-reviewed articles on the human side of organizations and research methods, and his influence in the fields of industrial organizational psychology and occupational health psychology is tremendous. But you'd never guess any of that if you simply ran into him somewhere. He's remarkably down-to-earth, personable, and just downright nice. Before retiring in 2020, Paul was a psychology professor at the University of South Florida for 38 years. He has continued teaching and doing research since then, and he joined us for a great conversation. We talked about occupational health psychology, signs of healthy and unhealthy workplaces, and how to create organizations that are better suited for the psychological and physical health of their members. Stay tuned for this wonderful conversation with the one and only Paul Spector. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Well, Paul Spector, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Awesome. So, you know, you have a long history in the world of industrial and organizational psychology, occupational health psychology. And I think for at least to start our conversation, it'd be great to delve into this idea and this field of occupational health psychology. And so, you know, for our listeners, I think it'd be fun and useful if they could hear from you, just what is occupational health psychology and, you know, a little bit about why it matters. The occupational health psychology is simply the um, study and application of psychological factors that have to do with employee health. So the IO field uh, has traditionally focused primarily on the more performance side. So how can we get the most out of employees? Um, But over the, at least the past probably 25, 30 years, there's been much more emphasis on the well-being of the employee and a realization that an organization can't be truly effective um, and maximize effectiveness if uh, the employees are not also taken care of. So there's this idea of the healthy organization, which is an organization that's managed in a way that maximizes the health of the organization itself, as well as the employees. And the health of both really are intertwined and they go together. So the, You know, employees are, for most organizations, one of the most expensive resources they have, or at least for many organizations. And so those resources need to be taken care of just as you would take care of other resources in in an organization. Except I hate talking about it that way. (laughs) You know, we can only get these numbskulls like, be nice to other people. Why? Mm -hmm. Oh, it'll give you a lot of money. Okay, now I'll be nice to people. (laughs) (laughs) well there is that side so there's sort of the 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 practical side the pragmatic side and the ethical side so for some decision makers some managers you can you can appeal to the ethical side and say you should be nice to people because um you know it's the ethical thing to do that you need to take care of people because that's important Uh, but for some you have to be sure and say well you know how does this affect my bottom line and for them you have the other uh, the other argument, and actually both have merit because if the organization doesn't worry about the bottom line, the organization will eventually go out of business, and then everybody loses their job. Um, but there's more than one reason to be concerned with employees. There's also the the more the moral ethical reason. Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned that this field has kind of evolved or been around for a number of decades now. Um, you know, and you're one of the pioneers in it. How, how did you first become interested in occupational health psychology? And what have you seen along that trajectory of its evolution? When I first graduated, I read a book called Work and Wellbeing by uh, Warren Wall from the UK. Now, the UK and Europe has a much longer tradition of being focused on the health and well-being side than the US. Um, so it was probably around 1976 that I read that book, and it really inspired me to start looking at the well-being side. Um, you know, when I was in grad school, if you, generally, at least in the U.S., well-being was defined as job satisfaction. 
And that was pretty much the only aspect that was studied. Um, but every paper had to justify it by tying it to the bottom line. So if you look at some of those earlier papers, they're talking about how it's linked to performance, it's linked to turnover, it's linked to costs. Um, but Warren Wall's approach was just to say, this is an important topic in its own right. And that really resonated with me. Um, if you look more recently, you'll find that um, you know, there's less of a need to justify uh, focusing on occupational health purely because of the cost. There's a lot more emphasis on, um, on it just being the right thing to do or just being a topic worth studying just because it's worth studying. Yeah, you know, one thing I'm curious about you that you mentioned just now is that it, there's more of this tradition, at least in maybe in Europe, uh, looking at these issues for a longer um, period of time than we have in the United States. Do you have any indication as to why that might be the case? I suspect it's um, two factors. One is cultural, um, particularly in Scandinavia, where a lot of the occupational stress work uh, really started. Uh, the other is unionization. Unions have a long history of being concerned with the welfare of employees, and Europe um, had stronger unions than the U.S. And some of it may just be cultural. Uh, mm -hmm. Americans are more individualistic, are more pragmatic, um, more uh, sort of business focused. And so that may be another reason that American IO psychology uh, early on focused mainly on getting the most out of employees hiring the best people and getting the most productivity out of them, where Europe was uh, more balanced and the UK was more balanced, where e even in the beginning, you know, the, the IO field really started uh, during World War I uh, in the US and in the UK. Now, Americans don't always realize that there was a parallel development there, but their focus was much more balanced on the, uh, the well-being of employees. What they noticed, um, was that employees working in war plants were highly stressed. And so they were concerned about, uh, about that aspect, which in the US they weren't as concerned about. Maybe some of it's because the US wasn't directly attacked um, mm. during the war, you know, Pearl Harbor, but, uh, but the mainland wasn't directly attacked where, uh, where the UK was. So maybe they were more, more aware of uh, issues of stress. Right. Right. So organizational health psychology, mm -hmm. you know, it's a research like a lot of people that I talk to mm -hmm. don't even know what IO psych is. Right. And so, you know, the doing research, they have annual events. Everybody's reading each other's paper. They're so happy. Is this stuff actually making a difference in the workplace? And how would we know? Like, what, what would be some mm -hmm. of the signs of that? Yeah. The field initially was mainly academics, academics doing research and writing papers and basically writing to each other. But some of the uh, students who've gotten trained in this area have gone out to be practitioners. And so there aren't a lot of them out there, but more and more over time, they've been doing things like, um, like selection, uh, selecting people for safety, for example, trying to figure out, you know, you have a job where there's a high risk for injury. Um, can you use tests to figure out who's least likely to be injured? They may be getting into training, getting into climate, and getting into other issues. So uh, you're right, Chris, most of it is academic, but more and more they're starting to be uh, practiced. Now, if you get outside of the psychology realm and you go into occupational health and safety more broadly, uh, where you're getting into public health and ergonomics and industrial hygiene and medicine and nursing, you see much more um, practical application, um, not on the psychology side so much, but on, uh, on approaches to how do you keep employees safe? How do you reduce that accidents? How do you reduce injuries? Yeah, you know, one thing that comes to mind and you mentioned here is just kind of this idea that, you know, work can be very risky. It can be risky for our physical health. It can be risky for our psychological health. What are some ways in which uh, work can be risky for us? Yeah, a lot depends on the occupation, of course, and what you're exposed to. So for, uh, you know, for professors, um, you know, the biggest risks are more psychological. So, uh, you know, we might be uh, bullied by colleagues. Um, 
there's the stress of, you know, am I going to get tenure? You know, there's workload pressure, those sorts of, of stress issues. Um, you know, maybe we, we have a slip and fall in the hall. Um, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're sedentary, so maybe we have back injuries or neck problems because uh, maybe wrist problems, that sort of thing. So it's not risk-free, but the risks are relatively low. You get into um, some of the highest risk occupations like fishing. So fishing has uh, about the highest fatality rate mm. of any occupation because you're out in the water. Um, you know, a storm can come up, your boat capsizes, you get knocked over overboard. Um, you know, the dangerous occupations tend to be those where people are out in the world, you know, logging is another one, farming is another one. They're out in the world, often working with equipment. Um, it's not uh, in, an, in a controlled environment. So often we think about manufacturing being dangerous, but manufacturing in the modern at least in the U.S. and Western uh, Western countries, um, it's a highly controlled environment, and we know a lot about how to how to design safe manufacturing equipment and safe factories. So the the risk there is is relatively low. But when you get out in the world where you can't control the environment, you can't control the weather, you can't control things that happen, that's where the highest risks occur. Yeah. And so those jobs, you know, you're you're working. Um, you know, working in a farm and you get, you might get injured with a piece of equipment. Yeah. So, you, you know, kind of focusing on the psychological side of things and you mentioned bullying, for example, you know, fortunately that's not a problem for me in my academic world. Um, and I do the bullying for Ben's yeah. Yes. Chris yeah. bullies me So he me can be frequently. a normal person. I make sure he gets bullied at least once yeah. a week. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I have a, I have a, I'm a very good department chair and a great Dean and all that. So uh, I don't have it there. So Chris has to make up for it, but, um, you know, I guess what is it about bullying that can be harmful psychologically? How does it, you know, because I guess, you know, yeah, it stresses you out. Um, but do we know anything about kind of how it affects us? One thing about bullying is uh, is a sense of a loss of control. Mm. So it's not just that people say unkind things. Often the, the bad bullying is where there's also some threat. There's some threat uh, psychological threat. There's also, you know, if it's your supervisor bullying you, uh, there's a feeling that your that your supervisor might fire you or might, uh, you know, demote you, give you give you bad evaluations, do all kinds of bad things to you. It's not just the words, you know. It's also the the threat. But words themselves, you know, if it's a a continual pattern of um, of basic abuse, that can have um, really bad psychological effects. Um, and there have been cases where people uh, wound up with uh, traumatic stress disorders from continually being bullied, um, even bullied by coworkers, where there's not necessarily the threat that you're going to get fired, but it's just you come to work and you're just going to experience unpleasant encounters. Um, maybe you're getting ostracized, you're being insulted, uh, maybe people are doing mean things to you. Um, you know, it's just just a, a bad situation to be in that can have, uh, in some cases, pretty devastating psychological effects. Yeah. And, you know, just, you know, I have been in some environments that are not as ideal as the one I'm currently in. So, you know, thinking back to prior things that I've places I've worked and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's just, I think it's, it's interesting and important to kind of highlight how, how distracting these types of things can be for you and how they can really harm your your productivity psychologically, right? Because you're, mm -hmm. especially if you're doing knowledge work, then your mind is occupied by all of these other things that are, you know, it's displacing your ability to actually get work done. And it can be very damaging that way. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for employees who have to come into offices. So for us as professors, you know, if there's some colleague that's, that's nasty, we can just avoid them or <laughs> we, we work from home. Exactly. Um, but if you're in an office where you have to come in and you have to encounter these people every day, it can be pretty difficult. Yeah. Another thing I think exacerbates that point, and this is something that I've been exploring in my own individual life, is from the psychological literature, Bowen and systems theory, we talk about being differentiated, right? Mm -hmm. Not emotionally infected by others. But on the other side that I don't see a lot of people that are exploring resilience in those things is the idea that no man is an island. Mm -hmm. Like, it, right? what do you think, Paul? Can it, it, could you thrive in a toxic 
bullying. Maybe there's some light violence going around. <laughs> I've seen some workplace mm -hmm. violence. And, and be psychologically not impacted. What do you think? It'd be really difficult. You know, maybe there are some people who can be so detached that it doesn't bother them, but it would be extremely difficult to be in that environment and not be negatively affected. You know, it makes it hard to, uh, to concentrate. You just dread going in because you know that there's going to be bad stuff going on, especially when it's directed at you. So uh, toxic, toxic is a good, um, is a good term for it because it is a poisonous environment that, uh, that can affect people in, in really significant ways. Yeah. Some of the research that I've explored in this area talks about the negative affect. If you face such a toxic, hostile thing. Paul, let's say you're a real jerk and we work together. Mm -hmm. uh, over time, which Paul's the least jerk you could ever meet, right? But over time, anytime I think about you, I'm going to start having those same negative emotional affect and it builds up in your person. Yeah, absolutely. Because you come to work and you know, I've, I've talked to people who say that, um, you know, they go home on the weekend and everything's great. And Sunday evening, they start getting anxious because they know they have to come to work in the morning. And so all week they're experiencing negative emotions. You know, maybe they're frustrated, a lot of anxiety, for example, about having to encounter these people and you never know when they're going to go off on you or do something nasty. And uh, it just is, is very difficult to deal with. And you're in this constant state of... Uh, it, of at least unease and tension, which is bad psychologically. And it's also bad physically to be in that kind of a state. Yeah, we face so much disruption. I think about the real estate economic collapse and fiasco. Everybody goes. I, I remember listening to all these NPR segments. Gee, why won't the youth of today invest more of their money or take more business risk? Then bam, COVID. And you're like, ha ha, told you, you know, and there's been a lot of volatility here. And I think we'll see a lot more of that until we figure out different ways of organizing society. But another side of this toxic piece, right, is, okay, you're going into a toxic job. It's toxic, toxic, toxic. Well, what if your option is being completely unemployed? So, you know, given COVID, you know, mm -hmm. this has affected different industries differently. You know, if you're a software developer for Amazon, you're probably rolling in the dough right now. If you're a service worker, you may still be laid off. So like given COVID and those negative influences uh, and people losing their jobs, what does that do to people psychologically? Yeah. The insecurity is difficult. You know, it's the insecurity that happens um you know, even in normal times, but COVID just made it worse for a lot of a lot of people in a lot of industries. Um, uncertainty is stressful, and the uncertainty of not knowing if you're going to have a job um, for a lot of occupations, people lost lost money. You know, if you're a server, even if your restaurant remained open and you still had a job, business is is slow, and so you're making less money. Um, and that uncertainty, again, you know, winds up uh, sleepless nights and, uh, and anxiety um, and stress. And of course, if you lost your job, then it's even worse because then you have that to deal with, which is extremely difficult. And it's, it's not just the financial aspect. You know, you lose your job, even if you have unemployment insurance, uh, you know, even the federal government is, is giving you um, bailout money to try to tide you over. There's still the psychological loss of uh, of losing the job, which can be uh, pretty pretty serious uh, for many people. Um, it's just another major stress in life. Sure, sure. So you know, a lot of people probably have been going through that in in the past year and, and so forth. Um, are there any things that we know from the research that either they can do to to help themselves? You know, some coping strategies. Um, or maybe are there some things that the people around them can do? If you know somebody who's going through that, uh, that can be helpful. The things you can do yourself is try to take charge. So you're losing control. So try to reassert control. So come up with plans. You know, if you've lost a job, think about, you know, what are you going to do moving forward? Think short term, think long term. You know, are you, you know, are you a server who got laid off? Uh, you know, is this the kind of work you want to go back to? Do you just have to be patient till things start picking up, um, which they apparently are now, at least in a lot of places. 
uh, or do you want to transition? Um, for a lot of people, you know, maybe you didn't really like that job anyway, or you didn't like that occupation. Is this an opportunity to do something else? So it's an opportunity to go back to school or to transition into a different occupation. So, you know, just sort of taking control of it, thinking in terms of long-term, what do I want to do? Working out a plan um, and then trying to execute that plan as best you can. Now it's tough, you know, during COVID when there were long, you know, months that there really wasn't a lot you could do depending on what your plan is. Um, but, but what you see, a pattern that you see is when the economy goes bad, people often go back to school. And this is taking charge of their lives and saying, okay, here's an opportunity to, uh, you know, maybe I've got some unemployment. Here's an opportunity to go back to school, get the degree that I've been in the back of my mind. Maybe now's the time to do it. As far as what you can do to help people, um, it's just being there to offer support. So, um, you know, so the best way to offer support is just to make it available, just to offer. So one of my, uh, doctoral student Cheryl Gray has been studying what she calls unhelpful help. The idea that um, help is not always helpful. You know, you don't want to impose it. You don't want to uh, overdo it. So often the best way is just to be there and ask people what they need and let them come to you and say, yeah, could you do this for me? You can do that for me. Because to, to just sort of assume, okay, you need this. I'm just going to go give it to you often can make things even worse. Yeah, that's great. You know, so one thing that you mentioned early on um, in our conversation was that some organizations are more healthy than others. You know, we can think about that from this perspective of occupational health, and some are less healthy, right? Some of those unhealthy places, maybe it's a toxic environment, et cetera. Um, how do you know if you're in one of those? Like, I guess, what does that look like, maybe both qualitatively, and of course, we have quantitative ways perhaps to measure these things. Um, but how do you know? I guess we'll start on the uh, start on the on the on the healthy side. How do you know you're in a healthy environment at work? Well, there are some organizations like American Psychological Association who give out these uh, you know healthy workplace awards and best employer awards. You start looking at what some of those characteristics are of those places. Uh, first of all, they tend to be well managed. In other words, they have efficient systems, you know, good systems to uh, to select people. So they select people with the right uh, right talents. Uh, they have training for those people. They help develop their skills and their capabilities. Uh, these places tend to minimize stress. You know, you can't eliminate stress. You know, stress is inherent in a lot of work, uh, but you can do your best to uh, to reduce it. You know, to to eliminate the unnecessary stress, uh, which has to do with treating people well. You know, treating people fairly, uh, being concerned with work-life balance uh, is another area. You know, be be sensitive to people. Yeah, you, you know, one thing that we say sometimes is, especially on on the side of kind of the, um, you know, just being supportive as as a leader, as a manager, is you can't fake this stuff. Like you 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 can kind of get by and say, okay, well, I guess we can support them enough so they don't quit. Um, but there's kind of another level there. And this maybe kind of speaks to maybe the ethical piece of this, or if you really want to take it to the next level, you have to, like leaders have to internalize this and actually care about people. There's no real shortcut there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So what I tell my, my uh, doctoral students when they're teaching is uh, the secret to getting good teaching ratings. Students have to, have to believe you care about them. And how do you get them to believe you care about them? You care about them. <laughs> I know I love people it. are trying to get away with minimum viable niceness or some garbage <laughs> like that. <laughs> but no, what's scary great. is that, Paul, you actually have to tell people this. What? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, those are some great markers, I think, of uh, of a healthy workplace. And one thing I, I just want to highlight that you mentioned is you said you start off and you said that they are well managed, right? That they they do things efficiently. They get the basics right. Um, and, and that in and of itself can be a way to reduce stress and make it a better workplace. So um, I think that there's there's a lot of, I guess, to use a a. Um, a consulting cliche, you know, a lot of low hanging fruit out there for, for managers to make their workplaces healthier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, one of the stressors is organizational constraints. 
uh, people want to do a good job and they don't have the right tools, the right equipment, the right supports. Uh, and so if you manage well, uh, you're making it easier for employees to be able to do their jobs, which reduces their stress, uh, increases their success. And it's good. Uh, you know, it, it's a win-win on both sides. Awesome. So when organizations are thinking about this, they're like, gee, I, I'm, I'm at the top. I'm the CEO. Everybody laughs at my jokes. I, my situational <laughs> awareness about what's going on within the org is zero, right? How might they measure, you know, whether they have a healthy or an unhealthy workplace? I know, I, I know the common questions around perceived organizational support. You know, I have the tools to do my job, those kinds of things. Are there stuff that, what are some of the top questions that are ways that people, are there assessments out there, those kinds of things that might help somebody get their arms around what's going on? You can certainly do employee surveys, and many companies do those. You have to be a little careful. I was talking to somebody at a at a at a major company who said that they have an annual um, satisfaction program. Uh, they survey their employees every year, but managers get uh, in some ways evaluated based on how happy their employees are, and so there's a lot of pressure for everybody to to rate really high. Please like me. Please like me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so you need to be a little careful. Another way is just to get out of your office and go talk to people. You know, you know management by walking around. <laughs> and just, you know, it takes a while to develop some trust with employees so they'll open up. Um, but just go, go around, talk to managers, but also talk to individual employees. Ask them what their, what their uh, challenges are. Uh, you know, what their jobs are like. And that can offer a lot of insights into what's going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that you said there, I think is so important is building that trust. And, you know, sometimes I come across, actually frequently, I come across managers and executives who maybe do the survey. Maybe they go around and talk to some people. They're obviously collecting some data around what's going well and what's not going well, but then they don't do anything with it. I, that that seems like it, it's it could be even counterproductive if you don't actually do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's better not to ask than to ask and do nothing. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like you know, it's better to let the employees think you don't care than to ask them their opinions, do nothing about it, and prove it. <laughs> oh my gosh best quote on the podcast to date <laughs> Love it. it's, it's, i mean it's it's funny because it's it's the truth and I, we see it so frequently yeah that's wow well said what about the financial costs um are there, what are there any studies that talk about you know when you have an unhealthy workplace you know you're going to have so many missed more sick days, higher health insurance costs. What, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. the, you could probably tie it uh, most easily to turnover. You know, if you think about replacement costs, which can be substantial, um, the direct cost of just having to hire and replace somebody and the indirect cost from lost productivity, um, that's one area where if you have a toxic workplace, you're probably having really high turnover and you have trouble keeping people. That's another indication. If you've got, you know, if you're if you're replacing um, basically 100% of your workforce every year, you know, there's something seriously wrong. Um, you know, it could be that your salary is just so much lower than everybody else in your industry, uh, but chances are it's just a toxic environment and people can't stand it, and so they're jumping ship, and that's tremendously costly, not only in having to replace them, but just the lost productivity. Um, it's a loss that. It's really a, an opportunity loss. You know, it's hard to see it directly. Um, but if you have an unstable workforce, it's really hard to maintain productivity. Sure. And then moving beyond that, you know, so there's the financial costs. Um, obviously, there's, there's social costs too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because an effective organization, um, you've got interrelationships among employees. You know, if an employee has a problem, they know who to go to to get help with it. And so employees help each other, support each other. And when people it's are, are just, you know, it's a revolving door, you lose all that. You lose the institutional memory. 
you lose relationships internally. You also lose external relationships. If you're losing salespeople, you're losing all those relationships with customers. Every time somebody leave, leaves and you bring somebody in new, they have to reestablish that, uh, that connection with customers. And that's really hard to do. Sure. Yeah. So what do you think about this? I think at a point, low pay becomes part of a toxic workplace. Yeah. If it's really low, if it's too low, you know, if you're, if you've got employees and they're working two and three jobs because you're paying them so little, or maybe they're, they're on public assistance because they're below the poverty level, you know, that that's a problem and it's going to be difficult to get a uh, maximum out of them. The more stress they're under, the more economic stress they're under, the less, the less attention and energy they've got to give to your job. And so it's, it can be a problem. Yeah. You know, one, one way that I've heard it talked about is, you know, you want to pay employees enough that they're not thinking about their pay all the time. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, right, so I've got, having been in the national guard, I was in the Alabama national guard, the Tennessee national guard. Now I'm in the Utah national guard. A lot of my soldiers lived in these small towns. And one of the things that they would do for their, you know, economic development of that region is try to attract a factory or a plant or something. But some of the things I see around these unhealthy workplaces is that becomes the major employer. You either work at the plant or you work at Wendy's or something like that. And it's almost, and I don't know if there's a design. I've not gone into rural plant strategies, but when you're the only gig in town, the amount of stress that you have and amount of bullying you can do in the workplace because people have nowhere else to go is insane. Yeah. There's that danger because people don't have options. So, you, you know, you may take the strategy of we don't have to pay them very well. We don't have to take care of them really because there's no other place to go. What you don't see is all the, um, is all the indirect sabotage and sometimes direct sabotage. You don't see that this plant has productivity that just doesn't meet expectations. There seems to be a lot of equipment breakage. There's a lot of, of bad stuff going on. You know, high scrappage rate, high costs, um, quality is poor. Um, if you take that, um, that attitude that you don't have to take care of your employees because you got them trapped, um, you know, they're, they're not gonna take care of you. A better strategy is to come, come in, pay a decent wage, be sure people are treated well, so they want to be there, not because they feel trapped because there's no other place to go, but because uh, it's just a good job for them. Yeah, you know, I always um, think about it in terms of you know how powerful fairness is as a as a as an emotion, as a feeling, as an attitude. Right? We we um, you know, when things are awry in our sense of justice in the universe or something, right? And in terms of our workplace, if we're being treated poorly, if it's an unhealthy workplace, but that's my only place I'm going to be, I'm going to probably be more motivated than not to, to try to do some things to balance that out. And it might be through some of those things that you mentioned, you know, some of those counterproductive work behaviors where you're maybe you're actually doing some sabotage. So, you know, leaders and managers, even if you're the only plant in town, there are great reasons to create a healthy work environment, even beyond the ethical and moral reasons why, why you might want to do so. And speaking of that, I, I think what I'd like to move us towards now is thinking a little bit about, you know, some of these different things that we can really do to promote healthy workplaces, either as an individual employee, a leader, a, an executive. Um, so I, I guess maybe we can start with this, this one idea that, that Chris and I talked a lot about a lot when we were thinking about this topic is, you know, Many of these things to make a healthy workplace, you know, having a high level of psychological safety, so I can say what I, I mean and, and have candor in my team, um, having, you know, a, a great team environment. How do you square that with also ha wanting to have individual career progression and there's interpersonal competition? Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, well, certainly there is, but, you know, if you think about organizations and organizations that, uh, that enable people to move up, it's a funnel. There's only so many, so much room at the top, not everybody can advance or at least at the same rate. So there's going to be some competition, but there can be healthy competition and, uh, and cutthroat competition. So a lot of it is in the, uh, the ways that managers manage, you know, you mentioned fairness. 
So one way is to have fair and transparent mechanisms for people to advance. And so if you want to move to the next level, you know, maybe there's certain uh, skills that you need to develop, certain knowledge you need to gain, certain experiences you need to, to gather. And so if you get those things, then you're eligible to move up. And if that's all above board and, and seems fair to everybody, there's less likely that there's going to be this cutthroat competition. On the other hand, if, if uh, employees perceive that managers just promote the people they like, then it's likely to be seen as unfair. And then you can get into this cutthroat people undermining each other, you know, sort of jockeying for the attention of the, of the supervisor and hopes to move up. So a lot of it's really in the way it's managed and the way it's dealt with. And the best way, again, is just to have a, have a, uh, a transparent system where people know what it takes to move forward. Um, and so they feel they're fairly treated. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so maybe starting kind of with some individual strategies or coping skills or things that people can do, um, you know, maybe when, when they are encountering some unhealthy workplace uh, environments. Um, you know, we had talked a little bit earlier about if you're maybe out of work, then taking control and having a plan can be helpful. Um, you know, what advice do you have for someone who, based upon the research, if you're facing an unhealthy workplace, be it a toxic, you know, team environment or anything else? Yeah, some of it's the same. You know, the first mm -hmm. thing is try to take control. So, you know, it depends how bad the situation is. If the situation has really gotten intolerable, then come up with a plan to, to move somewhere else. If it's maybe just your department, maybe you can move to another department. If it's the organization, then maybe you can move to another organization, <clears throat> either by getting on the job market and looking for another job, uh, you know, switching to another occupation, going back to school, those sorts of things. But if, um, if the idea is to stay where you are, um, you can try to, uh, to see what you can do about those situations. If you're having problems with your boss, um, maybe first step, just have, try to have a discussion with the boss, you know, explain that, um, you know, something they're doing is upsetting. You know, sometimes people don't realize their behavior is having a negative impact. And so if someone says, look, when you call me this, it really upsets me, you know, you might get them to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're doing it on purpose and they know they're, uh, that it's getting under your skin and they're doing it on purpose. In that case, you know, you can try to go around and talk to their boss. You know, sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's a risk because it could make it worse. Um, but sometimes the boss's boss will intervene and do something about it. Yeah. And, and if it's everybody that's getting that treatment from the boss, maybe the group can get together um, and uh, maybe that can, can help. Um, you know, those situations can be very difficult because sometimes you go to your boss's boss and the boss's boss doesn't want to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, you know, it just doesn't, it, it seems like there's nothing you can do. You're sort of trapped there. Yeah. So, so you either figure out how to cope, better cope with it. Um, you know, try to not let it bother you so much or, or start with a plan to get out and do something else. No. Yeah. You know, some of the thing is it's the Shawshank redemption effect. You've been institutionalized. You can get <laughs> so used to it. Don't accept that guys. If it's garbage, it's garbage. Get promoted. Don't be that. Don't become what you hate. Right. That kind of thing. Um, that being said, I've seen some people that thrive in high stress environments. You know, one of the things that we talk about is burnout rates and healthcare profession, right? Doctors. But I know some doctors that eat that stuff for breakfast. They love it. They love, oh, I just did three 20-hour days. You know, they, and, and oh yeah, another challenge, no problem. Is there something that we can learn about people that thrive in high-stress environments that for some of us that don't tolerate it so well, that what, what can we learn from those people that we might be able to take to our own lives? Yeah, people vary in the extent to which they can tolerate that kind of uh, workload and that kind of stress. So, you know, even among physicians, some physicians will go into a practice where they don't get emergencies, where it's nine to five. Others go into like emergency medicine, where there's a lot of excitement. Um, but people physiologically vary in how much, um, how much excitement it takes to, to keep them at a comfortable level. 
So some people who, are, you know, it doesn't take a lot. And for them, maybe just sitting, uh, you know, we sit and write a paper at our computers and that's enough stimulation and other mm-hmm. people are bored out of their minds and they need, need more. But even with them, it's probably the excitement of the job. It's not the excitement of, oh, somebody, I need, need to go in and, and talk to the bullies so, uh, so you can bully me so I can get <laughs> some excitement today. Good um, point. They probably don't want to be mistreated, but they do want the excitement of, uh, you know, in the military, you know, you have fighter pilots, you know, they thrive on the excitement. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so a key point here, and I deal with this in executive coaching and stuff, is accept how you're wired. Stop trying to put a round peg in a square hole type thing. You know, if you don't do well in a high stress, high tempo environment, why would you plant yourself there? If your parents told you, you had to be, you got three, you know, doctor or lawyer, be, pick one. Don't, don't put up with it. You might, you're not going to thrive in those environments that you're not suited for. Yeah, Absolutely. Some people are uh, better off sitting in a room by themselves working on a task on their computer or, you know, maybe, maybe doing some manual tasks. Um, and other people, you know, hate that sort of thing. They need to be with people. They need to, there needs to be a little bit of drama, a little bit of excitement. And that's what they want to deal with. So yeah. even among lawyers, you know, there are some lawyers who want to be in the office doing the, the, the legal research. And other lawyers who want to be in front of in the courtroom, you know, fighting with another lawyer in some case. And that's what they thrive on. Yeah. I think your point about, you know, the fact that there are real individual differences, right? We can't necessarily make ourselves into something that we are not. And that's something to, to accept and to, you know, try to find ways to match your career or your environment to how you really are. That's a really good piece of advice. Maybe we can turn now to, you know, if you're in a position of formal authority, if you're you have a management position, um, what might be some things that you can do to try to help promote a healthy environment in your workplace? What do you think? Yeah, it, it all comes down to good leadership and good management. You know, you want to uh, first make sure that your whatever unit you're running, you're managing runs efficiently. You want to try to get good procedures make sure things are well organized. You want to make sure that your employees have the tools that they need, you know, both physical tools and the, uh, you know, the human tools, you know, good communication, uh, good channels, uh, good um, interrelationships among employees. Uh, Oftentimes managers think that if um, we spend some some time doing fun stuff together, that it's frivolous and a waste of time. It isn't a waste of time. You're building trust and relationships, good working relationships among people so that they can go to each other for assistance. Um, you know, th- if, if I ask you to help me with something and you agree, I can trust you're actually going to do it and mm-hmm. get it done on time. So that's another whole area is in terms of trying to build relationships, um, your relationship with each employee, but the employee's relationships with each other, uh, which is really important. And the, the uh, the manager is in the best position to help facilitate that. Yeah, and and some of the other things that we talked about, you know, t- treating everybody fairly, uh, being nice to people, that sort of thing. But nice doesn't mean that everything goes. You know, a nice manager isn't somebody who says whatever you do is okay. Uh, you can have very high standards. You can hold people accountable for their performance and for their actions, but do it in a professional way where people aren't being abused, um, you know, you have fair procedures. The procedure is you're responsible for something, you're messing it up. And so, you know, ultimately, even if I wind up firing you, everybody will feel it's fair because you had every opportunity and you just weren't performing. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, You know, when you're talking about creating and fostering an environment in which people can you know, interact in a healthy way and have um, a feeling of trust with each other. You know, sometimes I, I come across executives who say, oh, well, that means that we must have the mandatory picnic every year or or something like that. And it, it's interesting because the, the intention is oftentimes good to try to do something nice for people and to get them all, you know, in, in a situation where they can interact in a healthy way. 
Um, but the execution sometimes isn't so mm-hmm. great. What, what did you, mm-hmm. What's your take on, you know, I guess, mandatory fun in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't make it mandatory. It should always be voluntary because, you know, it's not a job task. So if you want to have, you know, a happy hour on Friday afternoon, Friday evening or, or go to lunch or those sorts of things, you know, they should always be voluntary and no one should be forced to do it. And it's going to be more effective if, if people can, can do it. And if you start doing those things, um, you know, it grows over time because let's say the first you decide you're going to take uh, your employees to, to lunch once a month. And so the first time, you know, four of them come and then they go back and say, well, this was okay. It was, you know, it was fun. So next time maybe you have six people come. And so eventually people look forward to it because they realize this is just informal. You know, it's a chance to relax and just interact. You don't have to talk about work, uh, talking about other things. And so that can be uh, an effective tool. But, but yeah, it does have to be voluntary. Yeah. And by voluntary actually voluntary not one of these things where hey you're all invited to come and then you get all mad at the people who didn't show up (laughs) exactly (laughs) i see that sometimes so if you're a leader and you come in and it's an unhealthy workplace it's a toxic environment and how how do you start cutting that out and curating a better environment you know turning the frown upside down what what are some best practices there It's uh, first you have to realize it's a tough situation and you have to be patient and you have to go step at a time. So first thing is model the behavior you expect. So if people are used to the the manager being nasty, don't be nasty, you know, (laughs) express, you know, express to them that you value, you know, professional collegial treatment and, you know, at first they may not believe you because they're used to being abused, but after a while they realize that you're really serious. Um, you know, be, you know, correct people when they're nasty to each other. You know, mediate disputes. If two people are being nasty, you know, call them in and ask them what's going on and say, you know, let's talk about this issue, but, you know, I don't want anybody calling anybody names. Let's be calm and and you know, do that sort of thing. Do the do the conflict resolution, um, and over time, uh, you may be able to to solve it. Now, sometimes you're in a situation, and there's you know the one bad apple. There's a toxic person that's causing a problem for everybody, and you know, take some time to to make sure you know what's going on. But in that case, you know, call the person in, tell them their behavior is unacceptable. Um, you know, and you know, I, I believe in this idea of progressive discipline. You know, at first you just talk to the person and explain the situation. And, you know, if they keep going, you know, the discipline gets more and more severe over time. Uh, eventually it may be, you need to get rid of that person. Um, if it's just one person, um, transfer them out or, or if it's really disrupting everything, you may have no choice, but to, uh, to get rid of them. Yeah. No, that, that's great. And uh, Chris actually has a great way of talking about progressive discipline. What's that, Chris? Council, council, toast. You're out of here. <laughs> yeah. And this this was a bit of a kind of personal deal I made with myself because coming out of grad school during the last financial crisis, wasn't a whole lot of jobs. You know, there was some people that were toxic that were, you know, trying to curry favor, getting people, I had to organize to get somebody that was higher up fired, which was risky. And, you know, you're on, you're emotionally flooded. You're on full alert. I just had a baby. And the the thing that one of the pieces that I look at from this, and I I would be curious as to your perspective on this is the people, the line level worker, right? Those guys, I want to bend over backwards to save, but a toxic person at the director or VP level that has organizational remit, I'm a, I have a lot less tolerance with because they just shape so much of the culture. So when you're coming in, it's an org and you want to say, Hey, this is unhealthy. We want to turn it around. What do you think about that idea? Is those key man, since management is so key that that's probably where you should focus first on turning that culture around. If, if it is the case that it's come from the top, then absolutely. Because things tend to filter down and the climate starts at the top. So if you've got a toxic CEO that's abusing uh, everybody who works for that person, then it's going to filter down. 
And so ultimately they have the biggest impact. And so if it's a choice between some first level person or say a middle manager, the middle manager uh, is gonna have the biggest effect. And so the intervention there, whether it's sending them to uh, executive coaching to try to get them uh, to, uh, to reduce their toxicity, or uh, if it's getting rid of them, transferring them somewhere else, um, you know, that, that's where you're probably gonna get the most impact. But even at the bottom, you know, even though it may only be affecting uh, six or eight people, um, if it's sales and you got one toxic person, it's upsetting the whole sales group, that could have a tremendous impact on, on a company. Yeah. So, you know, when, when thinking about this and let's say somebody's lis listening to this episode and says, wow, this is, all sounds amazing. I would love to make my organization healthier, have a better emphasis on, on that aspect of my leadership and management. Are there resources that you recommend to people? And obviously one of them is the, uh, is your blog. So we will put a, a link in the show notes to Paul's blog. Cause it is great. Um, any other things that you would recommend to people for, for getting better at occupational health? A lot of it is just sound management practices. You know, if you look at, at the academic theories, for example, and, and a lot of the, uh, the practitioner books that often pick up principles from that literature, it's all about good management. You know, it's all about, you know, there's, you can think about management as having more the technical side and the people side. And the technical side is just organizing the work, getting the resources together, um, you know, managing budgets, all that sort of thing. And that's really important um, for the impact that it has on employees because, you know, if the organization, if your group organization isn't working well, it's hard for people to be productive and they're going to be under stress. And the other side is the interpersonal skills. And, you know, some managers are great on the technical side, not so great on the personal side. And sometimes it's reversed where they're really great interpersonally, but they're a disaster when it comes to planning and budgeting and all those sorts of things. And, you know, on the one hand, if you have a manager like that, it's great dealing with them interpersonally. You know, you like them, you enjoy being around them, but it's frustrating because things can't get done. And, you know, you're trying to get your job done, but everything's sort of a mess and uh, things aren't working very well. So the most effective managers know how to balance both of them. They know that, you know, there's a job they have to get done. They're responsible for it but they're also responsible for their human resources and taking care of those human resources and that the two things go together and you can't really be effective unless you can cover both of them. Gotcha. So, um, you know, would you say that you've seen any kind of fads in management or, you know, cause we come across these kinds of things, um, different types of, you know, things that people try, or maybe someone wrote a popular business book that's in the airport. Um, have you come across any of those things and what do you think about them? Um, sometimes they're sound. Sometimes there are things that get picked up, uh, say in a popular management book and it goes around, uh, you know, a lot of the people at top organizations know each other. A lot of CEOs interact with each other. And so, you know, they're comparing notes and, you know, maybe this is the latest thing. Um, sometimes it's faddish stuff that may not have much basis that may sort of be something not so effective, but a lot of times they're really sound principles and you're not necessarily going to go wrong in following them. Um, but it reminds me of one of my, um, executive students once asked me the question, um, is tr why do the academics focus so much on transformational leadership? You know, is it just because it's the fad? Or is it really so effective? Because he was dubious that in many instances, um, you know, transformational leadership principles are, are all that applicable. He's thinking particularly at low levels of organizations. Um, so I thought that's sort of taking your question and reversing it mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, but yeah, but, you know, the, the, I think the challenge for, uh, for managers is knowing what's really sound and effective and shown to be effective and what isn't. And that, that sometimes can be difficult to distinguish. Okay. So, you know, Paul, this has been a fantastic conversation. And one thing we're curious about is really about you as a, as a person, you know, you were a full-time professor for 38 years. You're still doing that type of work, even though, so you're failing miserably at retirement. You're still basically doing that type of work. Um, 
what motivates you? What keeps you going? What has kept you going as a, as a researcher, as a scholar, as an educator? Two things. One is on the research side, I like solving puzzles. And uh, to me, research is really about puzzles. It's like, you know, you get an idea, you, you conduct a study, you collect some data, you analyze it, you're trying to figure out a puzzle. Um, and every study is just a tiny piece. So I do projects that I'm just interested in. So that's one side of it. Most, the more important side of it is just the people that I get to work with. Because, you know, some of the work I do is, is you know, I blog by myself, for example, and some of the academic stuff I do is stuff that I do on my own. But most of it I do with different groups. So it might be, uh, you know, current graduate students, former students, other colleagues, and it's just fun to do that. So we once, um, when I was in the psychology department, had a Chinese uh, visiting scholar who spent the year with us. And I was talking to him one day, and from his perspective, um, as someone from a more collectivist country, uh, he said, research projects are just a device for you to hang out with your friends. <laughs> I love it. And so that sort of resonated with me. And I think a lot of it, for me at least, is just doing things that I want to do that I enjoy doing. And a lot of that is things that I do with, uh, with other people. Um, some of them at USF, some of them other places. And so that's just, uh, just a fun thing to do. Yeah. Do you have an idea of how many doctoral students you've interacted with or mentored or been on their, their committees or anything? Um, well, I've supervised in psychology um, 53 of them. Good so reason. two of them are, are yet to be done. On wow. the DBA side, I've, um, I'm uh, also supervising dissertations, and I have six that have finished, and, or seven that have finished, and there's two more that I have right now that I'm uh, chairing. Wow. And, um, and that, I'll, I'll just keep going as long as it's fun and I'm able to do it, because uh, it's really, really a fun thing to be able to, uh, to help people uh, work on dissertations, you know, take a, their rough idea and refine it and see them go through all the steps and finally defend and, yeah. uh, and graduate. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, so with regard to anything, anything that we talked about here today, um, is there anything else that you'd like to share? We'll let you have the last word, <clears throat> Paul. Well, what I would say about occupational health is that it's um, a topic that's important um, for, as we've talked about, you know, there's the, the ethical moral reason because people are important and we need to take care of people. And then there's the pragmatic reason. Um, and it's kind of interesting that when I was in graduate school, um, at least in the U.S., no one or very few people seemed to care about that. So I started doing stress research. Um, I, I, I guess I did my first study in the late 70s, and I sent it to one of our top journals, Journal of Applied Psychology. And the feedback I got was that this isn't IO psychology. Why would anybody care? And what I showed in that study is people who were unhappy with their jobs had more physical symptoms, um, which is well known today. There have been tons and tons of studies have shown that. Um, and so I set it aside, and 10 years later, I got another paper uh, with um, a couple of my graduate students, Steve Jex and Dan Dwyer, in the same journal. Uh, and that time, we were showing the connection between job conditions and, uh, and health symptoms and, and, and jobs, um, job satisfaction, stressors, all those sorts of things. Um, but at the time, in the 80s, there were very, very few stress studies done. And there were only a handful of people in the U.S. who were interested in that. Um, and now that's one of the major topics. If you look at, uh, at conferences like the PSYOP conference for IO psychologists, if you look at the major journals, there's stress studies all over the place. So for me, it's been really exciting to see uh, a topic that was pretty much neglected go from, from almost zero uh, to being one of the the top topics uh, during my career. And I don't think it's going away. I don't think this idea that occupational health is important is gonna go away. I mean, the, the IO field has just expanded tremendously uh, during my career in, uh, in a lot of different areas, and this is one of them. 
Well, Paul Spector, it has been an absolute honor having you on the Indigo podcast. Thanks, man. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.